find this on page 840. Reading verses 10 through 22 today. 10 through 22. Psalm 136, starting in verse 10, going to verse 22. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who see in two, for his mercy endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his mercy endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage. For his mercy endures forever, and heritage to Israel his servant. For his mercy endures forever. Now, my friends, we're continuing to look at the 136th Psalm. This is now part four, and we've been doing so with this theme. The psalmist gives us abundant reason for thanksgiving. The psalmist gives us abundant reason for thanksgiving. So we're continuing, as I said, to look at this notion of thanksgiving because the very beginning it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. And of course, as we've noted, this psalm has a very unique structure with its refrain at the end of each of the 26 verses. For his mercy is everlasting, or his mercy endures forever. Uh, this psalm is divided into several different sections, and uh, we're considering this in terms of these five, these, uh, five parts, if you will. Uh, although you can divide next week, we can see there may be three sections in particular, but in any case, we'll consider those all together next Lord's Day. Now again, just to, to one through three, we saw the threefold summons to give thanks, and there we find we are to give thanks simply for who God is. And he is, of course, Yahweh or Jehovah, verse one. He is Elohim, the God of gods. And he is Adonai, the Lord of Lords. So those three ways by which we can refer to God, those three basic ways, Yahweh, his personal name, Elohim, God, God of gods, all the so-called gods of this world, and Lord of Lords, the one, or we could say, not only Lord of Lords, but King of Kings. But Lord there, the word Lord, of course, Adonai. And then verses 4 through 9, as we just sang from Psalm 19 a few minutes ago, 
we, we're also celebrating in that psalm God's work as creator. And that's what we find in verses 4 through 9 here in Psalm 136. Uh, the one who, uh, in general terms, does great wonders. We talked about that. I just, last night, was showing to Miss Penny on, on my telephone I, this sea creature that has rarely been seen. It was all, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. It's about 2,000 to 2,500 feet down. And it's got these really strange-looking eyes. It's just amazing. Oh, and also, do you know, children, you know what a millipede is? It's a, it's a creature with a 1,000 feet. Do you know they had never found a millipede before? We, a millipede is sort of like a, uh, you know, an exaggerated way of referring to it. But they finally found one with 1,306 feet on it. You know how long it was? 3.7 inches. Can you imagine? So, I mean, there are so many wonders in the earth. And it was, it was several hundred feet down. They discovered it in terms of, of uh, drilling, looking for, for resources and things. It's just amazing. I mean, the, the, we, we, just, just amazing the things that we, we the, the more that we know about creation, the more we realize that we don't know. And so the description in general terms with then description of the heavens and the heavenly bodies, and again, as we sang from Psalm 19 just a little bit ago. And then last week, we considered the deliverance from Egypt, verses 10 through 15. And this deliverance, as we saw, at the same time destroyed the enemy, the Egyptians. And you know, the Lord Jesus is so concerned about his people that he will... He with all of his and our enemies. Now, I'm reminded of uh, Psalm uh, 21, verses 9 and following. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. And, of course, that's what we, that's what we find here in the 136th Psalm as well. So the deliverance of God's people is accomplished at the same time as the destruction of his enemies. As a matter of fact, as we noted last week, the destruction of Egypt had to do with the destruction of Egypt's gods and its false religion. Or we might even say false religions, I suppose. Um, it was not simply a matter of let my people go. It was to make fun of, it was to mock, to mock, to make fun of the false gods. See, children, we are not called upon to respect false religion. The Bible does not respect false religion. False religion is idolatry. False religion is an affront to the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a jealous God, you see. And he will destroy all those who make, try to make him in their own image. And that's what you find in terms of Egypt. So all of the, it's interesting, remember? All the plagues on Egypt, if you, if you look at them carefully, you will see that each of those plagues, whether it be turning the Nile into blood, into red, certainly, 
uh, maybe not literal blood, but certainly into a red color at the very least. Uh, the frogs, rabbit, rabbit. All of those, all of all of those plagues related to one or more gods of Egypt, including the destruction of the firstborn. Because you remember, Pharaoh was viewed to be a god, and so then his his offspring, his firstborn, would be the one to replace him. And so we find then very clearly that God is the one who made fun of and destroyed Egypt's false gods. This deliverance, of course, out of Egypt displayed God's great power. And this deliverance, then, is a picture of redemption or salvation. That's the whole point. So it's not just, it's not simply that God's people who were oppressed were set free in a physical sense. But it was a picture, it was painting a picture of their and of our spiritual deliverance from sin. That's the whole point. And we're going to see that theme as well as we come now into this fourth section, verses 16 through 22, which has to do with the wilderness and Canaan, the promised land. The wilderness and Canaan, promised land. So look at verse 16. This is after Pharaoh and his army were overthrown in the Red Sea. Verse 16, to him, that is Yahweh, Jehovah, to him who led his people through the wilderness. So children coming out of Egypt, coming out of the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea, remember that great, that, that great display of God where the Red Sea was ripped apart, as it were, and the children of Israel passed through on dry ground, the Egyptians then, their chariots, the wheels got stuck, and that all the chari- all the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. Well, what's on the other side of um, of the Red Sea from Egypt? It's the Arabian Peninsula. It is desert. It is desert. It's a wilderness area. That's where the children of Israel now were, and so God is showing His power, His preservation of His people as they are in the wilderness. And by the way, we're not talking about just you know, 100 people, uh, 10,000 people, about 3 million people. Now think about that. About 3 million people. So what is Metro Atlanta? I think we're up to, what are we, about 6 million now in all of Metro Atlanta? So about half the size, not just of the city of Atlanta, that's only several hundred thousand, but you look at all the suburbs, which is a huge area, that would include where Miss Penny and I live way up in, in uh, Forsyth County, and you know you look at this whole metropolitan area, it's about six million people. So about half the size of Metro Atlanta. And it's that number of people then that had to be preserved by God in the wilderness. A matter of fact, being they're being led through a desert land. It's not a very hospitable place. There aren't any roads. There certainly, therefore, aren't any road signs. There are no restaurants. There are no motels. There are no interstate highways for the camels. Okay. And so it is a, it's a trackless area. As a matter of fact, so, so they have to be led. They have to be directed by God and preserved in this, in this land where there, there is 
very little in terms of water, very little in, certainly in terms of food and vegetation. God led them by the cloudy and fiery pillar. So a, a great, think of a great pillar, okay, like of smoke. And by night it shined like flame, but it was a cloudy pillar. And it was by means of that, by means of that cloud, that God directed them, that God led them. More than that, he provided miraculously for them, particularly food and water. He provided food and water. But you know, there's something else he did that's very interesting. And should, it, it, I mean, it's just amazing as you think about it. Because he, it wasn't just that he continued to provide for his people physically, but he continued to provide for them spiritually, and especially in this regard, he also continued to forgive. How many times, how many times did the children of Israel grumble, grumble, grumble against God? How many times did they, did they rebel against the Lord? How many times did they show that they weren't really sincere? And yet God continued throughout 40 years of their wandering in the desert. And so, to him who led his people through the wilderness, but secondly, verse 17, to him who struck down great kings, or smote great kings. Now turn with me to Joshua chapters 11 and 12, just for a moment. Joshua 11 and 12. Look at, verse, look at chapter 12, first of all. So if you're looking in your Pew Bible, page 310, page 310. So Joshua chapter 12, and uh, verse 7, page 310. And these are the kings of the countries Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad and the Valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir. Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, and slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then he goes on to list, look at this, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormoth, one. The king of Arad, one. Well, you get the point. Notice you go down to the end of the chapter. The king of Terza, one. All the kings, 31. 31 kings. But you see, it wasn't just... And, and starting, by the way, with the, with the king of Jericho. You remember where Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down? Starting with the king of Jericho, but then conquering this promised land, the Canaanites, who, by the way, were under God's curse. Their, their iniquity was full, and therefore he told his people to wipe out the Canaanites because their iniquity was full. But notice, it wasn't just the number. Go back to chapter 11 of Joshua. Chapter 11, verse 4. 
So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. It wasn't just the number, it was the multitude. Can you imagine if you were in one of the, one of the, um, uh, if you were one of the Germans on June 6, 1944, D-Day, and you were looking, you were peering through, it was early in the morning, and you were looking there out into the English Channel, and all of a sudden you saw more ships than you had ever seen before. Matter of fact, it was the largest invasion in history. Can you imagine? You'd be quaking in your boots if you're one of the German Germans there on the coast of Normandy, France, on D-Day. Well, that's sort of the picture you have here, isn't it? As many people as the sand that is on the seashore multitude with very many horses and chariots. But notice something also. It was not just that. It was not just how many there were uh, in number of kings or and how large these armies were. But notice something uh, as we go down to verses 6 and following, Joshua 11. It was the fact that there was total destruction. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring, King James, hawk, so hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misraphath, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of their remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings uh, and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood in their mouths, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing. And so we find here then the celebration of this great victory here in Psalm 136 and verse 17 as we give thanks to him who struck down great kings for his mercy endures forever. But notice something then. We give thanks to God who did the smiting. So even though the children of Israel had to obey him and actually had to take the sword, but behind, of course, was the Lord directing this so that the children of Israel were able to do this. But again, notice, it is God who struck down great kings because God is the one who is judging his enemies. God is the one who will destroy his enemies. And that's the picture that you have here. For his mercy endures forever. And then, verse 18, and slew famous kings. Now, men who were perhaps famous, even legends in their own minds, right? You know the old joke about that. 
legends in their own minds, not in The enemies, you see, of the church will suffer loss of fame and shame. And again, Joshua chapter 11, Joshua chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. Notice verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so these famous kings, well, where are they? They're dead. And all their people are dead too. And not only that, but then specifically, there are two that are mentioned. First of all, verse 19, Sion, king of the Amorites. Now, children, the Amorites were apparently a tall people who lived in Canaan. By the way, I was, we were hoping to, uh, to see uh, our friend Paul here this weekend. Unfortunately, uh, he was not able to make it, but he hopes to see us early in the new year. But you all remember Paul, right? And uh, he's a pretty tall fellow. I'm sure you've known other people who are pretty tall. Well, you know, that. just think of, of a basketball team, okay? Um, but these people, the Amorites, were apparently a tall people. They, they were among the Canaanites. And Sion is mentioned often as a mighty king. Now, he harassed them. He annoyed the Israelites on their way into the land of Canaan. We read today from Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, we have uh, the defeat of Sion. You'll notice in uh, verse 23, where the, the Sion king of the Amorites would not allow the Israelites to pass through their land, will, uh, will not drink water from wells, and so forth. But verse 23, but Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and wowed against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, so those are rivers, as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages, and so forth. And uh, uh, verse 31, thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. And so, not only Zion, king of the Amorites, totally defeated, but Og, the king of Bashan. He is one of the giants that is mentioned, Deuteronomy 3, verse 11, and another mighty king uh, of the Amorites. And Numbers 21 also describes his defeat. Verse 33, and they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them. He and all his people to battle at Edrai. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Zion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people, until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. 
No, children, you know the definition of uh, insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again and thinking you're going to get a different result. Well, that's what you find here, do you not? Og should have realized what happens when you go up against God. And he didn't. And so he too, then, is defeated. You know, there are several times in the Bible where Og and Sion are held up as examples of God's mercy to his people. That is to say, by the bringing of judgment upon them, against them, God is showing his mercy to his people. And that's exactly what you find here. Zion, king of the Amorites, is slain for his mercy. The Lord's mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And then verse 21, and gave their land for an heritage. And of course, notice that it's not so much here by sword or bow, but it is by divine grant. It is by God's gift. It is by royal charter. It is by Jehovah's power and authority. And of course, not only did he give it in general, but he also parceled out the land to each of the 12 tribes, as we know, by lot, by the casting of lots. And then verse 22, an heritage to Israel, his servant. Now, did you notice something here? This is almost the same as what we find in verse 21. So it gave their lands a heritage, and then verse 22, a heritage to Israel, his servant. Well, he's repeating himself, isn't he? God is repeating himself. Why? In order to emphasize it. It's sort of like underlining it and putting it in bold and putting it in italics and putting it in red letters. Well, here, by means of repetition, it's emphasizing it. But there's also one thing, did you notice? There's the addition of the idea of servant and heritage not just an heritage to Israel, an inheritance to Israel, but an inheritance to Israel, his servant, his, we could even say, his slave. And so God now is showing his mercy to his people, and his people, you see, are his servants, the ones who serve him, the ones who obey him. Now, four points of, of observation and the two uh, brief points of application. First of all, by way of observation, notice that thanksgiving includes giving thanks for God's judgments. Giving includes giving thanks for God's judgments. We give thanks to God for his vindicating his glory, for he will not give his glory to another, and you can't mock God and get away with it. And we give thanks to God, therefore, for vindicating his honor and his glory. But we also give thanks for God vindicating his elect, that is to say, his chosen people. And so when we talk about thanksgiving, see, we, we tend to think in very, well, many times very privatized terms, if you will, very, oh, I'm thankful for, for you know, for food, for health, all those things are fine. But we also need to think broadly, if you will. We need to think of the people of God as a whole. And so thanksgiving includes giving thanks for God's judgments, which, by the way, protect 
and provide for his people. Secondly, by way of observation, what we see here in Psalm 136 is a trio. It's a trio of creation, redemption, providence. Creation, redemption, providence. Creation, redemption, providence. It's a, it's a trio, is it not? And so we see that, of course, in verses 4 through 9 in terms of creation and the, the wonders of it. That's theater, if you will. That's the, the theater. Creation is the theater of God's glory and the theater of God's actions in bringing salvation. Secondly, the exodus from Egypt is a picture of redemption, of salvation, as he brings his people out of the land of bondage. But God not only brings his people out of Egypt, but he also provides for all their needs and brings them into the promised land. And so creation, redemption, providence. Here we see these three things here. Thirdly, by way of observation, we are to identify with God's people throughout history. We are to identify with God's people throughout history. You see, we are united with the men, women, and children of ancient Israel. We are united with them. We are part and parcel with them. Indeed, in the New Testament era, age, we are the new Israel. And did you ever realize this is one of the reasons why we sing the Psalms and why that's so important? Because these are the very songs that God's people have always sung, whether in the Old Testament or in the early church period in the New Testament age. We are privileged to sing the very songs that God's people have always sung, in contrast to making them up, making up the songs on our own. We sing what God's Spirit has provided for us. So when we sing, as it were, with the people of God in every age, we are the new Israel, which includes not just ethnic Israel, not just the literal descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are the new Israel, Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And we are united with the men, women, and children of ancient Israel, therefore. And therefore, the story of the Israelites of old is our story, too. It's our story, too. We're part of the tapestry. We're part of the painting, if you will. Um, you know, this. Th there should be, therefore, I, I guess you would expect, since I have a PhD in history, I'd make this point, but there should be, therefore, an excitement about history and about what God is doing. I, I, look, I, as I say to my students in the first day of class, I'm sure some of y'all think history is boring. It is not boring. It's a story about people. People are funny. People are peculiar. Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. All of that is true. But as believers, we know something, we know a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is that history is his story. It's a story about what God is doing, about what Christ is doing in space and time. And there should therefore be an excitement about history so that when we, we have, for example, these accounts of great kings being killed, famous kings being 
slain, including Zion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and their land being given as an heritage to Israel. We should recognize that this is what God is doing in history. What God is has done for his people, including ourselves, because his people needed to be preserved in order for Jesus to come. In order for Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary. His people needed to be preserved. That line needed to be preserved, you see, and needed to be provided for. And we are part of that. But now we see, not only can we celebrate what God has done in the past, we can also celebrate in the same spirit in terms of what God is doing today and what God is going to do in the future. And so we are to identify with God's people throughout history. We are united with ancient Israel. We are the new Israel. And fourthly, there is a deeper significance than simply what is seen and what is in the physical realm. There's a deeper significance than what is seen with the physical eyes and what's in the physical realm. Now, let's be clear. There is a flesh and blood reality to the war in which we fight. I think of our, our, um, our fathers and mothers in the faith called the Covenanters, the Scottish Covenanters. These are people several hundred years ago in Scotland. This is why we're Reformed Presbyterians. Several hundred years ago, these people stood up against governmental tyranny, against the king of Scotland, the king of England, who said that he had the authority to rule in the church. And these covenanters said, no way. It is the Lord Jesus who is, the, who is Zion's only head and king. He is the one who rules in this church. And 18,000 men, women, and children during the killing times in Scotland from about 1660 to about 1688 were either killed, sometimes a father would be murdered in front of the wife and children, were either killed or imprisoned or sent into exile. Scotland was not that big a country back then. Not that big today, but it certainly wasn't back 300 years ago. It wasn't that big a country. And this is the heritage, you see, and this is part of the price that they pay. But we can think today, look at, look at Nigeria. Look at how Muslim is Nigeria. And you'll never hear CNN talking about it. You'll never hear the mainstream media talking about it because it doesn't fit their agenda. Because they don't care, quite frankly about the believers in Jesus who are being slaughtered today. Look at China. Look at our brothers and sisters in China who are imprisoned, who are being killed. So there is a flesh and blood reality to the war in which we fight. Sometimes we do sacrifice even in terms of our own blood. But what I want to point out as well is that that flesh and blood dimension points to an unseen spiritual reality, like the lesser to the greater. So yes, we, we have this here in terms of, of this flesh and blood warfare that sometimes we literally called upon to take a sword, but the real warfare is, is deeper or it's higher than that. It is a spiritual warfare. 
This is true with regard to warfare itself. You remember what we just had uh, the Bible study on uh, Wednesdays in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, speaking of the weaponry that we use. What is the essence of the weaponry? Verse 12 of Ephesians 6, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. You see, behind those tyrants, whether we talk about this in Great Britain in the 17th century, whether we talk about it in Nigeria or communist China or communist Cuba or wherever it may be today, Iran, Iraq, behind that persecution and that hatred and that murder is the one who is the murderer from the beginning, namely Satan. And so there is a spiritual dimension that we must not forget about. So we have the outward manifestation of it in a variety of ways. But there is a higher realm and a greater realm, if you will. And the point here is, is that in the same way that God slay, slew famous kings, Zion king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan, in a similar way and in a greater way, he's also destroyed our great enemy, which is the devil himself, so that Paul will be able to say he, that, that you will crush Satan, you see. Romans 16, verse 20. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is the one who has crushed the head of Satan. And so that flesh and blood dimension that can be very real is pointing to a greater and unseen spiritual reality with regard to warfare, but also with regard to redemption. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 5 and 6. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul of Israel being in the wilderness. And then verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And so not only in terms of warfare, but also with regard to redemption, there is a deeper and at the same time higher significance in simply what is seen with the physical eye. The four observations, and now two points of application. Number one, give thanks for God's providential care for you. Give thanks for God's providential care for you. You see, with God, you can face the giants. These Amorites, they were tall folks. Tall drinks of water, we would say. Powerful. Powerful. You wouldn't want to, you want to want to meet uh, an NFL lineman in a dark alley if he wasn't your friend, right? And there are many giants that we face. But with God, you can face the giants. And there is nothing that happens, but your Heavenly Father knows about it and has ordained it and is bringing you through it. 
He's bringing you through the wilderness. So give thanks for God's providential care for you. And then secondly, give thanks for God giving you the grace to overcome all obstacles in your spiritual life. Again, what we have here is a picture of salvation with respect to our sanctification, our being set apart as the servants of God. This account, you see here, had to do with taking charge of the land, with exercising dominion over it. The meek shall inherit the earth. He gave their land as a heritage, and heritage to Israel his servant, exercising dominion over that land. And in the same way, then, we are to ask the Lord for his grace so that we can be sanctified and so that we can exercise dominion over our lives. We fight against the world and the devil. We fight against those external enemies. But my friends, we also fight against the flesh, which is an internal enemy. That's in many ways the toughest, isn't it? But it's, so we, we come to this, you see, and we recognize we need to fight that battle so we can exercise dominion, you see, over our lives. But of course, let us, as we do so, let us always remember that as we exercise that dominion, as we are sanctified, as we are set apart, it is all because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Because in him we find the ultimate expression of this reality. For his mercy endures forever. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them deeply in each heart. Lord, thou art the one who searches the hearts. And so we pray that the devil would not snatch it away, but we pray that the seed be planted deeply in the soil of each heart. And so we ask, Lord, that that would be the case. And so we pray for the ability to be sanctified and indeed to exercise dominion over those things that thou dost give us as our inheritance and indeed over our lives. And so be pleased to do that, O God, for the sake of thy Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.